I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. The government to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio I got so many beasts on Hands pressed cold against the phone See all the stars descending right No country imprisons a larger share of its people than America. Its incarceration rate, 693 of every 100,000, is nearly five times Britain's, six times Canada's, and 15 times Japan's. And that rate masks huge variations. Washington, D.C., Louisiana, and Georgia each lock up more than one in every 100 residents. Why? Blind injustice tries to answer that complex question from an unusual perspective. The author, Mark Godsey, used to be a federal prosecutor in New York, he went on to co-found the Ohio Innocence Project, which works to free the wrongly convicted. His book is about how his career change also changed his outlook by showing up problems in the system that I as a prosecutor should have seen, but about which I had simply been in denial. And it is about the police and prosecutors who uphold that system, the normal, regular people who would help an old man cross the road or who would shovel the snow from a sick neighbour's driveway, but who go back to their offices and commit acts of heartbreaking, callous injustice because they are operating under a bureaucratic fog of denial. I want your hand Across my belly I want your breasts Upon my back I want your pain To rip right through me I am your death You are my wrath I'll take your hand Beyond the threshold I'll take your gifts As artifact I'll take your tongue Right down to my throat You are my loss I am your man I find your eyes they give me shelter I find your lips They give me peace I find your need To take me over Open my heart I'll tell you stories Open my legs your mind Open my mail I'll tell your forty You are my fate I'm your design I'll lead you all the city burning 
Anda sedang mendengarkan sebuah tas besar penuh dengan onions yang punya bill. I'm the daughter of a sailor from the port of Amsterdam. My father was a first officer aboard merchant ships. He shipped tobacco, wool, cotton, meat, grain, soya, wood, coffee and cocoa from South America. Yet what fascinated me the most about his life at sea was not so much the cargo as the ship's navigation systems. One piece of apparatus in particular caught my imagination, the sextant. A sextant measures the angle between the horizon and a celestial body for the purposes of determining a ship's course. First officers would stand on the bridge of the ship with this triangular object and shoot celestial bodies. How magical is that? Shooting stars, the sun, the moon. I imagined a mortally wounded moon falling from the sky into the ocean. As a poet, I admired the work of John Donne, a metaphysical poet. His poems are characterized by the inventive use of conceits. Academics often explain these conceits as a mix of ordinary speech with paradoxes and puns. The results were strange, comparing unlikely things, such as lovers to a pair of compasses, or the soul to a drop of dew.
In the late Victorian and early Edwardian period of 1880 to 1914, at least, Britain had a swagger in its step. You could see it in Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee of 1897 and Edward VII's coronation in 1902, or hear it in the music of Edward Elgar. You could detect it in the objects of everyday life: coins of gold and silver, books bound in leather embossed with gold, stamps doubling as works of art. The middle classes lived in solid contentment, with enough space to bring up a family and enough servants to lighten the domestic drudgery. No wonder the generation shattered by the First World War and buffeted by the Depression, then by the rise of communism and fascism, looked back on the Edwardian era as an enchanted long ago, when civilized people were forever taking tea on the vicarage lawn. And yet, even these years hinted at Britain's mortality as the world's most powerful country. The ruling class became hoggishly self-indulgent. At the same time, the intellectual elite, particularly the Bloomsbury set, took to ridiculing as prigs and bores the Victorian giants who had built up the economic and moral capital which they lived off. These years saw America replacing Britain as the world's biggest economy. There is surely no better illustration of Britain's decadence than the entrepreneurial vigor of the likes of John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie.
Our sire's age was worse than our grandsire's. We, their sons, are more worthless than they, so in our turn we shall give the world a progeny yet more corrupt. That was the way of the world according to Horace, a Roman poet, writing in about 20 BC. He has no shortage of contemporary successors. Doomsayers of the past two centuries have blamed, among other things, novels, the radio, jazz, rock and roll, television, horror films, Dungeons and Dragons, video games, the internet, smartphones and social media for the sad decline of the young. John Protzko, a psychologist at the University of California, Santa Barbara, though, wondered whether things might be not quite so gloomy as they seemed. To try to bring some rigor to the question, he went hunting for examples of a cognitive experiment called the Marshmallow Test. This test, first performed at Stanford University in the 1960s, measures how good young children are at self-control, specifically whether or not they can defer a small but immediate reward, such as a marshmallow, in favour of a bigger one later. It was one of the first examples of a standardised psychological test, so it gave him plenty of historical data to work with. Morning fair, I took the air down by Blackwater side. Twas in gazing up all around me, the eye. The far part of the night We lay in sport and a play Till this young man arose And forget at his clothes Saying Not the promise that you gave to me When first you lay on my breast You could make me believe With your lying tongue That the sun rose in the home to your father's garden go home and weep your fill and think on your own I took the air down by Blackwater side. Twas in gazing up all around me, the Irish let us
Disegno. 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 OMG, the kids and the internet are ruining the English language. Am I right? The sentiment is so common that it hardly bears a reply, except maybe, meh. There is certainly plenty of terrible writing on the internet, plagued by indifferent spelling, punctuation and grammar, and a lack of any attention to clarity. There is also a lot of brilliant writing online. It is difficult to prove that digital technologies are actually making people into worse writers. It is likely that the world is just seeing more unfiltered thoughts written down than at any other time in history. People are not writing worse so much as writing and publishing far more. But the internet is changing language. Words, phrases and new ways of playing with grammar are coming and going faster than ever before. Older generations have been complaining about the state of young people's writing since a teacher of Sumerian complained about his charges 4,000 years ago. A junior scribe does not pay attention to the scribal art. But language really is changing at a dizzying rate today, thanks to the speed with which innovations spread online. This makes a book about language in the Internet age a dicey proposition. It risks becoming dated in the lag between writing and the time the book hits the shelves. It also probably makes for a short shelf life.
Dunnocks have small territories, so it was possible to measure the amount of human disturbance in a given territory with reasonable precision. And by ringing each of the dunnocks in the garden with color-coded bands, it was possible to identify individuals by sight. Altogether, the researchers looked at 99 of them. They worked out a bird's level of threat tolerance by the simple expedient of having one of their number, as far as possible the same person each time, walk towards it and then measuring how close that individual could get before the bird flew away. They did this several times for each bird every breeding season and repeated the process over the course of three seasons. A particular bird's flight distance, i.e. how closely it could be approached before it departed, was, they found, constant within a breeding season. From season to season, most birds got a little bolder, presumably as they learnt more about the world and what they could safely get away with. But this increase in boldness with age was small compared with the different starting points of bold and timid birds when they first arrived in a territory. It did not, therefore, much affect the fact that, on average, birds' flight distances were inversely correlated with the level of human disturbance in their territories. This was a consequence of disturbed territories being settled by bold birds and undisturbed territories by shy ones.
your distinct and Bill's big pack of onions. For Eli Finkel, the rise of speed dating was almost too good to be true. A psychologist at Northwestern University who studies relationships, he found that hooking up recording equipment at the tables where singles have brief chats with multiple prospective dates offered an extravaganza of data. The ability to follow up with participants for years afterwards helped make Mr. Finkel one of the leading lights in the realm of relationship psychology. Then, after his wife suffered two difficult pregnancies and postpartum depression, his own marriage, rewarding up until that point, was suddenly struggling for life. Love, intimacy and sex were all but gone. In his candid first book, The All or Nothing Marriage, Mr. Finkel examines both how he and his wife survived the worst and how other couples might do the same. He argues that high expectations for a marriage greatly benefit a couple when times are good, but are counterproductive when times are tough. Mr. Finkel and his wife made it through their own emotional rough weather by lowering expectations for a few years. It was instinctive at the time, but he later discovered the research of James McNulty at Florida State University, which finds that couples with high expectations are almost twice as happy during easier times as couples with lower expectations, but they are also almost twice as unhappy during hard times. I am transgender. I know this is true because I had seven bucks out when I used to be called James and literally no one was interested in inviting me on radio shows or TV programmes. About two years ago, I did an interview with Patrick Strudwick, a journalist at BuzzFeed, to announce that I'd started my medical transition some six months earlier. 
I thought my transition would mostly be about me throwing off a disguise I'd been wearing for 30 years. But I also found myself riding a wave of societal change. Now, it's up to you to decide who's exploiting who. Is the media milking transgender people, currently as simultaneously trendy and maligned as migrants and Muslims, or am I leveraging my fashionable gender status because I have a memoir out? All good bookshops. But there's a problem with my newfound life as a transgender rent-a-gob. I have literally no idea what I'm talking about. None of us do. All any of us can ever do is talk about our own lived experience of transitioning and gender. But this has intrinsically tied our value to, at best, our heroic journey, and at worst, our genitals. Now, you see, what's happening here is you're listening to an edition of Bill's Big Bag of Onions. So listen hard, listen well, and listen, um, listen hard and well. From the height of the highway on ramp we saw Two dogs, a dead in a field Glowing on the Oakland Coliseum, green seats, wasteland Dogs, dogs we thought were dead They rose up, rose up when whistled at A ribcage inflating, like men on the beach being photographed A guard dog, dog. for what? Against overzealous, penniless, athletic fanatics Getting into things through a hole in the fence For the owner of the blue tarp tent Pitch by a creek beneath the on-ramp In the privacy of the last three Skin and bony tree Devoid of leaves Us undeceived With our new CDs Zipping on daddy Oakland It's hard to stand the sight of two dogs dead under a sky so blue You have to stop the blood to your head To fit the breath in front of you It's hard to stand the sight of two dogs dead under a sky so blue You have to stop the blood to your head To fit the breath in front of you To be red tendon dog. To be red tendon dog. Was breathing by the side of the highway. Along to be dead. Center of a curious crowd. To be touched. Sticky like nearly dried paint. Their soft science stare. Nursing your face. Anticipating the slide. To pinch. I flinch. Of pain. Everyone blank. Glass. Dust straight up settles on your raw muscle tissue. It's hard to stand the sight of two dogs dead under a sky so blue. You have to stop the blood to your head to fit the breath in front of you. It's hard to stand the sight of two dogs dead under a sky so blue. You have to stop the blood to your head. Oh,
Mayflower and its passengers has been told so many times that one cannot help wondering whether the ship's importance has been overstated. It is not that her journey from Southampton to New England in 1620, carrying dozens of English religious separatists from the Dutch city of Leiden, whither they had fled to escape an England they considered to be under a papist cloud, was not an important event. But it is scarcely possible to exaggerate how large a weight that one small dilapidated cargo ship sold for scrap less than five years after her historic voyage, has been asked to bear in America's imagination. So famous is she that one needs to remind oneself that she was certainly not the first to make the voyage, that the colony at Jamestown in Virginia had existed for more than a decade when she arrived, and that once in New England, migrants from the Mayflower were swamped by a much larger number of Puritans sailing to Massachusetts during the 1630s. Rebecca Fraser, a British historian, deals with this overabundance of history by focusing upon one leading family, that of Edward Winslow, a printer, diplomat and author, but also by widening the time frame, following some of the passengers until July 20th, 1704. On that day, the last living one, Peregrine White, Peregrine means pilgrim, who had been born on the Mayflower died, and the Mayflower generation passed into history.
in America, you were an agrarian country for much longer than we were. And in England, people would look at America and think, oh, you have such wonderful, pure food, and it's so plentiful, and if only we could be like that. But <laughs> it didn't last. After the Civil War period in the 1870s was when people started to get really alarmed. But there had been little glimpses before that of how bad things could be. The most shocking being the swill milk scandal happening in New York City in the 1850s. And you can see it as being directly related to the city growing. Because in the early stages, picture these lovely green spaces in New York and cows and people could just go right there and get their milk. And that eventually had to stop as the city grew. What they would do instead was attach cows to distilleries. It's the worst idea in the world. Feed the cows this leftover alcoholic mash from producing whiskey or whatever other spirits. And there were these terrible accounts of the cows seeming quite stupefied. You know, they were drunk from consuming this liquid. And then the milk that they produced was just a kind of dream for bacteria. It looked bad, it looked kind of bluish. So what they did is they added a bit of cornstarch, let's say, to thicken it up, a few drops of yellow colouring, and then it would be repackaged as the purest Orange County wholesome natural farm milk.
Excuse me, uh, are you gonna do the voiceover or not? It's your Bill's big bag of onions. I'm Bill Lawrence. Join me again soon for another big bag of onions.